Where are you headed? Stevenson Beach. That's a long way from here. Why don't I put on a podcast while we drive? But be warned, it may contain spoilers for the movie Invisible Man. Welcome to Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect films' most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Gareth Slade, and this week's movie is 2020's The Invisible Man. So, take a pew in a hilariously trendy restaurant, hope that nothing untoward happens, and let's get diabolical! Hello and welcome to this week's pod. Joining me, as always, are the panel of peril who will compete at the show's close to see who can improve the villainous plan of the week the best, and earn the right to pick next week's film and become host. This week, I'm joined by Ben Steinson. Hello. Craig Morris. Roger Taylor. And Adam Turner. Hello. Now this week, we're trying something new out as we take a guess at one another's favourite invisible thing. That can be a person, creature, object, whatever you can think of, really. It's our version of the Mr. and Mrs. game, which I'm going to call the Mr. and Mrs. game. <laughs> First up, we're all going to try and guess... Ben Steinson's favourite invisible thing. I didn't know we were supposed to do one for each other. You fucking plan. <laughs> That's the game part of it. What did you think we were doing? I've just written my own down. Jesus. <laughs> I was just going to hold it up and then you were just going to guess it and I was going to go, no. Would you hazard a guess at what? Um, the invisible dog lead. <laughs> the invisible dog lead? Yeah. And Craig? And what's your guess, Gaz? Uh, Craig, next. Going alphabetical. See, this is this has already gone wrong. <laughs> terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> All right. Well, my guess is Ben Steinson's favourite invisible thing is Pete's dragon. And my guess is that it is the cape that you can get in Legend of Zelda: A Link to the Past, which makes your character invisible. So, if Ben can reveal what his favourite invisible thing is, so I thought it was the Cheshire Cat from Alice in Wonderland. But now, I, now it probably was the cape from Zelda. <laughs> Gaz knows me better than I know myself. Okay, next. What is Craig's favourite invisible thing? I've gone for a song, which is The Invisible Man by Queen. I do love Queen, and I, I do like that song, but the song is not invisible. <laughs> well, the song is invisible, if oh, you think shit. about it. You can't really see music. It's ephemeral. You can't touch it. I guess Randall Boggs from Monsters, Inc. And Turner, would you care to take a last-minute guess? I reckon Sue Storm from Fantastic Four. Uh, no, only like her when she is visible. Oh. <laughs> My favourite invisible thing is the leap of faith from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, very good. Which is like an invisible uh, bridge. Well, it's not technically invisible. It's more camouflaged, so it doesn't really count. Can we have Craig disqualified <laughs> for that, please? Let's disqualify this movie, then. Because the Invisible Man technically isn't invisible, is he? He's camouflaged. With cameras. Well, you can't see him. You can't see the bridge either. <laughs> but when you're looking at the Invisible Man and you tilt your head to the side, you can't, still can't see him. If you do that with the Invisible Bridge on the Last Crusade, you go, oh, yeah, there he is. Yeah. Tell you what, next time we'll make sure we get all the rules about what constitutes an invisible thing down. Fucking right we should, yeah. Too right, yeah. That, yeah, God. Yeah, that'll, um, that'll be a fun message chain. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we've got that nailed down, we don't have to worry about any of us completely not understanding the concept of the quiz. <laughs> We'll just do whatever you say, Craig. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay. What do we all think Adam Turner's favourite invisible thing could possibly be? So initially, I thought Frodo Baggins, mm. but then when Turner said, oh, I'm going with an object, then I changed my <laughs> guess to the USS Defiant from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is the only Federation spaceship capable of cloaking. Yes, you're so close, but so far away. Well, I had exactly the same thought process. Originally, it would be Frodo or Bilbo. But when it became an object, I guessed it would be the One Ring. And if it's not, if he says something different, he's lying, because it definitely is the One Ring. I'm saying that about my guess as well. (laughs) And simply because he's been mentioned by you several times in the last week since we decided on Invisible Man. I'm saying Kevin Bacon, the actor, Ah. not the character in the film The Hollow Man. Because his career is now invisible, essentially. Uh, He does those EE adverts. They're pretty cool. All right, come on. Is it a Romulan Warbird? Oh, yeah. Of course it's a fucking Romulan Warbird. It fucking's a Romulan Warbird. I was close, wasn't I? I was so close. You were very, very close. No cigar. Yeah, and my shortlist was Bilbo Baggins, Baggins, the Visible Dog Lead, (laughs) and then uh, the Romulan Warbird. The Visible Dog Lead. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly and leastly, what are your guesses for me? Oh, I know. I think your favourite invisible thing is Sebastian Kane from Hollow Man. And I think your favourite invisible person is Miles Morales, the... Spider-Man from Spider-Man. And I think your favourite invisible person is Jesus. Well, so close yet so far. My favourite invisible thing is the big invisible monster from the Doctor Who episode, Vincent and the Doctor. Such a good episode. Is that one of the new ones, is it? That's way too nerdy. I'd never guess that. Um, Gareth, would you like to just give us a standard opening where you ask our favourite invisible things? Because that was about (laughs) 10 minutes of absolute posh. The Invisible Man's year of release saw no notable events in world news. Aside from a global pandemic, civil unrest in the United States of an unseen scale in a generation, and the release of the PlayStation 5, complete with controllers that break quite easily and that I now have to spend £60 on replacing, thank you very much. Film releases were in large part cancelled due to the COVID-19 pandemic, with some notable exceptions being Immigrant Story Minari, Controversial revenge tale promising young woman, the elegant and soulful Nomadland, and load of old shit Tenet. <laughs> Seen any of those, fellas? Nah, I haven't been watching films since about 2016. Uh, I've seen Tenet. Uh, actually, I, I don't think I saw the end of Tenet. I think I, I got bored. <laughs> I was meant to give Tenet a go, but I thought my concentration span at the moment is practically zero, so I wouldn't be able to get the hang of it at it's all. not a one-watch film in order to understand what the fuck is going on so yeah you do need to concentrate in lee one updated version of the invisible man the titular character may or may not be deceased and may or may not be gaslighting his abused partner to the brink of insanity to prevent her from accessing his last will and testament and exacting revenge upon her for leaving him during the film's opening sequence. Or is he? Or is he? Or is he? <laughs> one Owl cut his teeth as the founding writer for both the Saw and Insidious film franchises before adding director to his resume with Insidious Chapter 3 and the excellent cyberpunk body horror Upgrade. 
The Invisible Man is his third film as director. He was slated to write and direct an update of The Wolfman, with Ryan Gosling starring, but has since dropped out and doesn't appear to have anything concrete in the pipeline. Which is good, because I imagine that concrete would be a bad thing to have inside a pipeline. So, fellas, what did you think of the film? Uh, I thought it was great. It's a very tense movie, especially the opening, even though we are unfamiliar with the setup. I think because of the tropes of the Invisible Man genre, we are made to feel tense right away. And his use of the frame makes you feel a presence all the time. She's always off-centre as you get to see the rest of the room. My favourite shot in that regard, which leads you to think that he may be there, is Elizabeth Moss is in sort of the living room area and it's open plan and the camera pans over to the kitchen area a good 10 seconds before anybody walks over there. It's so economical. He uses that technique quite a few times and and every time it makes you feel really unnerved. I I think it was excellent. And I agree, Craig, that that opening was superb. It was just so intense right from the off. And you were rooting for for Elizabeth Moss's character, Cecilia. You were rooting for her right from the start. And you don't know why, but you you just know you're on her side and you want her to get away. Mm. But you you have no backstory. A question I had for, for all of you, do you think that film could have been pulled off in that way with anyone other than Elizabeth Moss? I think she carried it for me. I thought she was... She's superb. She's superb. Yeah. The slow burn of her becoming more unhinged as the pressure piles on top of her up to when she's being strapped to the bed in the uh, mental health facility and she's just screaming at the empty doorway, I can see you, you motherfucker. You feel that she's gone over the edge. Quite similar to uh, Linda Hamilton in um, Terminator 2, now that I think about it. Mm. But yeah, she's tremendous, and apparently she contributed to the scripting of her character quite a lot as well. Her uh, role, obviously not the traditional focus of these things, tends to be more about the psychology of Griffin. So it was nice to see the the flip side of that, the psychology of uh, yeah. the, the abused mm-hmm. rather than the abuser. How about you, Tina? Because I know you had uh, not... Not a high opinion of the film beforehand. Yeah, well, as you say, we were talking about it before we watched it again. And I I don't know, maybe I was in the wrong place when I watched it the first time. But this time around, yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed it. And I think I sat still for pretty much a whole film, which is uh, difficult for me to do. I echo what Ben and Craig have already said about it. I, I, it was like the first sort of 10, 15 minutes of the film, the shots are like you're expecting somebody to be watching her and to be following her and things like that. And it's awesome. It's it's the classic quintessential horror setup really for me is what you can't see is the bit that gets you, that keeps the tension up the way he brings it all on and just piles on the pressure. And then the way it flips like that at the end is, yeah, it's really well done. I think you're right about the horror being the thing that you can't see. Nothing beats your imagination, but quite early on, I think too early on for me, you see his breath when she's outside and it's clearly not hers. You know, he's there. I think and that's, I, that's one of my favorite scares. Yeah, I think that's a nice touch. Shot. Yeah, It's cool, but mm. I knew that he was there then. And I, a part of me prior to that was thinking, oh, maybe it's going to be that he's not there and she's just batshit. Yeah, it's funny you say that because at the point where Elizabeth Moss's character has the, the confrontation in the house, I kind of thought, well, where's this film going now? I thought this this just feels like a final confrontation almost, mm. and then I realised there's like half of the movie left. That fight scene you were talking about as well is, 
pretty incredible to watch, isn't it? As yeah. It must have been done with wires and then CGI'd out. I think it's pretty chroma key, guy in a green suit kind of thing. I thought it looked a little bit ropey, actually. I didn't mind it because I was buying into the story, but I'm guessing it was quite a small budget for this. Six million dollars. Yeah, that's super small for what it is. It's pulled off a lot with six million. See where all that went. Elizabeth Moss budget. <laughs> it had some really nice Easter eggs to Invisible Man lore, like the uh, the bandage man she sees at the hospital and the mannequin in the room has that hat on. Yeah, that was great. The hat, the cape. Yeah. The other <laughs> disappointment for me, not massively, it didn't take me very long. And, and, and obviously there is a, another, you could maybe call it a twist in this, but it didn't take me very long to think, oh, it's the brother. The fact I wrote down at 58 minutes and four seconds that it's the brother or that at least he was involved. I think they telegraphed that a bit. I think what he did well was the scene where he shows his brother's body, the photos of his brother's body. Mm-hmm. Because before that, yeah, it was pretty nailed on that he was involved. But then he's, then he talks about how he hated his brother and how he was controlled. And I think he sells it quite well. Yeah. He threw me off there. Yeah. We'd normally discuss favourite lines, but I don't think there's many memorable lines. So I think favourite scares is probably the most appropriate. Oh, I've got one. Okay. Fair enough. What's your favourite line then, Steiner? I actually have a few. Um, there's, there's two that are just genuinely brilliant delivery. Um, this is during the first confrontation in the house where Cecilia says, uh, you know, there's nothing left for you to take. You've taken it all. You've already taken it all. Yeah, it was good. Cold. Just the way she delivers that sent a tingle down my spine. You, you really believed that. And then uh, I liked her surprise at the end. Yeah, that's a, a callback, isn't it? But my very favourite line from the whole film and this is maybe just because of the way it kind of stands out, is uh, the Uber driver, Stevenson Beach. That's a long way from here. (laughs) (laughs) So unnecessary. And I'm not saying he was a bad actor. He was fine, I'm sure, but it made me chuckle. One thing I did note down that I thought was really cool is uh, the suit makes a sort of similar clicking noise to the Predator. I don't know if that's intentional. I didn't catch that. can't do it is that the camera's focusing or something yeah i think it probably is yeah presumably it's creepy right it looks like eyes yeah i thought it was great i thought they did a really great job with it you know it's believable enough the science of it is more believable than like the usual the flesh and bone is the thing that becomes invisible that you get in like the classic invisible man tale but maybe it's a bit less interesting psychologically because he can choose to become visible again, whereas like Hawley Griffin can't. Being invisible is like his curse as well. But then, like I said earlier, this movie kind of focuses more on the character of C than it does on the invisible man. Yeah, which is why they obviously they had to give him the, the background in, in abuse that they, they gave him, right? So that was already there and just the suit was a, a means. Hmm. And the fact that it didn't show it, but we saw how it affected Cecilia just made it a lot scarier than it would have been if we'd have seen it, I think. And again, that's because Elizabeth Moss's performance, she sells it so well. You know, she's got these like nervous ticks and you just see, you think, Christ, this guy's done a number on her. Yeah, that's it. Again, I think it's this lost art of filmmaking where you let the audience believe what they want to believe and imagination plays a massive part. I think a key with horror is often about what you don't see, yeah. what you're not shown. Definitely. I think that's, you know, Japanese horror in general is very good at that. Mm. It's um, They favour the monster you can't see is how they say it here. 
quite a lot of that is down to the studio Bloomhouse. They specialize in low budget, high quality horror. So the low budget often necessitates higher levels of creativity. You can see it in a lot of their output. They don't always hit every time. Uh, Fantasy Island's a bit of a dog. But, you know, the the new Halloween films are fantastic. Several of the Purge films are, are well worth watching. Hereditary might be one of those. I thought that I had heard this was meant to be part of the universal monsterverse that Tom Cruise derailed with his awful mummy movie. Not quite. It originally was being developed as part of that universe. Johnny Depp was playing the Invisible Man, wasn't he? But when that crashed very, very hard, not unlike the famous plane in the trailer with the weird scream, they rethought and brought Lee Whannell on to come up with a low-budget standalone version. Can we talk about the, the scene in the restaurant? Because that was unbelievable. What was your reaction when that knife appeared in midair? Immediately, I thought it was a little bit goofy, the way it was like moving around. But then when I saw what happened with it, I uh, I don't do this very often, but I audibly gasped. <laughs> <laughs> Again, for me, that scene I thought was another climactic point. I thought... It's kind of, this is going to be the start of the climax. She's going to tell her sister, her sister's going to help her out and they're going to solve the problem. That's where I thought it was going. And then it cuts this knife floating. And I, yeah, I gasped. I, I may have even said, oh, fuck. <laughs> what I mean by it being goofy is it's almost set up as like a comedy beat where she, she's talking to her sister and her sister just, her gaze just slowly moves away. It's like, what are you looking at? All of a sudden it happens and it's over and it's done. And she's holding a knife and you, th- and I, I, yeah, I literally said, shit. <laughs> and the reaction of her just sitting there, staring, trying to process what's just happened. And I think that's like a real proper human reaction to it. I think she plays it really well there. Yeah, what's great is part of the shock is how quickly he slaps it into her hand and she's just got nothing she can do about it. There's also sort of the, the slow realisation amongst the other people in the restaurant, slowly yeah. seeing and then yeah. the screams. Um, starting to ring out the scene in the home the home her home where her uh, friend is he called James where he's beaten that one was quite shocking that was grim yeah especially uh, seeing his face when it looked like he was uh, I I did think he was dead actually but uh, just unconscious I guess an earlier scare in the film that I quite like because it's never made explicit you can you can infer that it involved Griffin or not is uh, when Cecilia is cooking bacon and eggs on the stove and she leaves the kitchen for a minute and then the flame just increases just, just a little bit yeah. and it starts to burn. I've written here, did Griffin cause the fire? Is in my notes. Well, he did because you see the knife go first. The knife falls off the counter, yeah. Mm, that... Yeah, but I, I, I'm with Gaz on this. I think it's yeah. not explicit. No, it is. It's very explicit. I'm with Ben on this one. There was one scare that wasn't supposed to be a big scare, but I think I let it scare me more than it should have. When she's in the room and she calls his mobile and you hear the vibration of the mobile and the ceiling. Yeah. I thought immediately, <laughs> oh shit, is he stuck to the ceiling? And panicked. <laughs> You've spoken about Hollow Man a few times, Senator, and there's a great bit in Hollow Man where Elizabeth Chew chucks a bunch of paint on him and it's like, Ugh! but when that same thing happens, it... I believe it's Eliz- Elizabeth Chew. Yeah, I think you're right. 
Uh, and when the same thing happens in this, it's just not quite as uh, impactful, I don't think. Yeah, it seems like a water-based paint as well. Came off quite easily. Yes. Yeah, gave it a quick, quick rinse around the key areas and he was gone. <laughs> I tell you what, we've talked about Elizabeth Moss's performance quite a lot. When his scene finally came at the close of the film, what did everybody think of Oliver Jackson Cohen? He did so much in a short space. When she's in the bathroom and he's sitting at the table just waiting for her to come back, all of the rage just really plays out on his face. He does a lot with no dialogue in that scene. It's a pretty intense scene. He was excellent at making you really hate him. And like I say, he was on screen for, what, five minutes the whole movie? But um, immediately he had this kind of this air that you just, a distrustful air, I guess. I think he's going to be a big star. I've seen him in a few things now. He's absolutely heartbreaking in um, Haunting of Hill House on Netflix, which is an excellent series. And in Haunting of Bly Manor, he plays another horrible bastard. He's really, really versatile. If you see those two series and see how diametrically opposed these two characters are. I'd say the same of, of Michael Dorman, who plays his brother. I think we're going to see a lot more of him as well. Some closing points. I'd just like to say the the music um, by Benjamin Wolfish, who must be some sort of big mouth Billy Bass. <laughs> just wanted to put that on there. I was very pleased with that one. It's really good. There's lots of the the noises. Can't get enough of those. Are you going to do your broccoli bit? I didn't think this film really needed a broccoli rating because it's more, isn't it more to do with comedy. Nothing funny about the broccoli rating system. Oh, it's to do with Villa's plots. This plot is really dark. It's well thought out by a narcissistic evil genius. So I'm going to give it eight florets of broccoli. Streaking into the lead. Yeah, that beats uh, get out seven florets of broccoli. You benchmark. Wow. You do realise that our listeners will want to see the scoreboard for these movies. I would imagine that they're probably keeping track themselves. They've probably made their own chart. Got some broccoli stamps or stickers or something. Or just some real broccoli. Or some real broccoli. Hold on! We need to tell you about the big screen presented by Forbidden Worlds Film Festival running from 28 till 30 October in the beautiful former Bristol IMAX Cinema Bristol Aquarium. They'll be screening such gems as Greatest Film Ever Made, Evil Dead 2, The Bride of Frankenstein, John Carpenter's Halloween and many more. It sounds brilliant. For more information, head over to forbiddenworldsfilmfestival.co.uk and book your tickets now. The link will be in the show notes. Now, this is the part of the show where our panel of peril compete for the title of this week's Most Diabolical, and with it, the honour of choosing next week's movie and hosting the show. In The Invisible Man, the abusive titular character attempts to gaslight his ex-partner into returning to him by means of faked suicide, framing her for her sister's murder, and tampering with her birth control. Fellas, let's see just how misogynistic you can be. Well, seeing the lengths that my partner went to to get away from me would be a real wake-up call. So after crying myself to sleep, I'd wake up the next day and I'd vow to change my ways. I'd give Cecilia some space watching her from a distance in my invisibility suit as she rebuilds her life. As I see her begin to regain her confidence, I would hire a good-looking but simple fellow and orchestrate a meet-cute 
between the hired hunk and Cecilia at a local deli. I'd probably know which one she'd frequent more often, having spied on her for the past few weeks. Equipped with a hidden receiver, the hired hunk would, on my signal, accidentally bump into her, spilling her selection of cold meats on the chessboard floor. (laughs) I'm sorry, he would say, repeating word for word the lines I feed him. Wow, he would add, their eyes locking over pungent bologna. You're the most beautiful woman I've ever made spill luncheon meats. Please allow me to replace those. Then, perhaps if you'd like, we could grab a coffee. Thus would begin their romance. Being fed words of beauty and poetry from my superior brain, he couldn't fail to woo her. Several dates and a thoughtful romantic gift or two later, the hired hunk would surprise Cecilia with a picnic, whisking her off to a beautiful secluded spot. There I would stage the big reveal. As the two enjoy more of the speciality meats that brought them together, the hunk would ask Cecilia to close her eyes as he'd like to serenade her. With her eyes closed, he and I would switch places. Now visible, I would recite the most beautiful poetry a cursory glance at Google could provide. When she opens her eyes, I would confess all, that they were my words, my romantic gestures all along, and therefore it was in fact me that she had fallen for. In this perfect moment of elation and confusion, I'd cosh her over the bonds and drag her back to my now heavily fortified mansion to begin our lives together anew. Serrano Ham de Bergerac. <laughs> Why would you use a kosh when you got a perfectly good salami and then you can eat the evidence? Or better yet, my question is, why all this meat cute and deli nonsense when you've got a kosh at the ready? You just kosh you on the bonds way prior to that. Because I'm a, I'm a narcissist, aren't I? And, and, and it, you know, the whole point is to gaslight and, and to torture and there's no, no better way to do that than make her think she's moving on with her life. And then, bosh! Kosh her on the bonds early doors, take her back to your gaff and then convince her she's eating charcuterie but really you've given her Barney Bear meat and you're just the top stuff from the deli that and she'd be like no it isn't that like, stuff that's got a teddy bear's face in the middle of it that one yeah can i change my plan to that <laughs> next up we've got turner i felt very uncomfortable trying to create a plot for this one as uh, the original scheme essentially deals with physical and psychological abuse so uh, putting yourself in to the mind of somebody like that is weirdly a lot more challenging than coming up with a plan that could potentially kill tens of thousands if not millions of people Took me a few days to get my head round, to be honest. So um, here goes. Adrian understands that his suit would have incredible potential for military purposes, turning highly trained special forces soldiers into undetectable assassins. So Adrian approaches a corrupt senator, take your pick, with links to weapons companies to help him take his top secret suit to the US government. The senator and the weapons company instantly recognize this is a game changer and promise him anything he wants but he has a special request. He wants their help in making Celia's life a misery and will only allow development of the suit further if he is assured they help him in his sick scheme. Accustomed to creating human suffering on a much greater scale, the senator and the weapons firm are only too happy to oblige. Following Celia's escape, Adrian goes on the charm offensive with Celia, promising change, deposits the five million in her account and ends up going on a journey of self-discovery and atonement in somewhere like... Uh, Vietnam or something. Anyway, the point is far away from America and suspicion. 
He regularly sends videos of him hiking through the mountains, various temples on the road to self-enlightenment, but secretly using his master of optics skills to insert himself into videos others have made. From a hidden bunker, Adrian secretly directs the private security team while they constantly harass Celia. This includes closing the front door to find herself locked out, tipping over cups of tea, moving a bowl of cereal further away when she's not looking, <laughs> and the creme de la creme, moving her chair unexpectedly as she's sitting down. It's not long before Celia believes she's moved into a haunted house and calls the local paranormal detectives to rid her of her suspected spooky guests. Little does she know, the investigators are the very same team that have been moving stuff around her house while invisible. They don't identify a haunting. No, no, no. They accuse Celia of witchcraft. The team then abducts Celia and take her to their religious commune in the forest, where they will convict her of being a witch after a sham trial. She is thrown into a deep pool for tests for witchcraft, and she floats, secretly being held up by invisible scuba men, nonetheless. Yeah, she's definitely a witch, or she would have sunk, shouts a toothless <laughs> religious drunk. The false religious fanatics begin to build a large wooden platform to eventually burn her at the stake in the morning. At sunrise, the wooden platform has been built. Celia is dragged from her cell. As Celia is tied to the stake, she has resigned herself to her fate to be burnt alive by fruitcakes. However, just before the torches light the fire, who skids to the rescue aboard a three-wheeled tuk-tuk? But Adrian, fresh from his spiritual awakening, he shouts the immortal line, The power of Christ compel you to get to fuck! As he fly kicks the torch carrier away. Supported by his new friends, a group of ninja Buddhist monks, he sets about routing the religious wackos into the forest and sees them off, never to be seen again. I heard you had gone missing, Celia, so I rushed away from the meditation camp and used everything at my disposal to find you. I'm so sorry, and I love you. As Adrian nurses Celia back to health after a traumatic ordeal, it seems as all has been forgiven, but those pesky spirits refuse to go away and are up to her old tricks. After a chair moves as she sits down and a can of paint drops <laughs> on her head, covering her in gloss, Adrian looks at the camera and says, That's my Celia! Cue maniacal laughing, Finn. Bravo. Uh, Bravo. It's quite elaborate, though, isn't it? I don't know whether anybody else caught that. <laughs> Was it? Yeah, I, I started off quite... Re- <laughs> I started off quite reasonable, and I just thought the best thing is to go absolutely crazy, and what, what, could, what could happen? And I just thought, well, there you go, that'll do. Just uh, seems like it'd require a fair old bit of organising. Don't know how practical well, it is. We know how deep the pockets of um, weapons companies are. Billions and billions and billions of dollars every year. And then getting their hands on an invisible suit. Whew, how much is that going to be worth to them? I'm not 100% convinced that anyone in the modern day would do a witch trial. Well, they were religious nut jobs, But a lot of people say they don't believe in ghosts these days. And yet they're still paranormal investigators. And people still hire them. So... I bet there's still people out there believing witches and probably would, given the chance, burn people to a stake. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's got a hard act to follow, Craig. <laughs> I know, and I, I don't think that I can. I mean, what I would say is that... For, we'll just end it now then, Gaz. For, for much <laughs> the same reason uh, that Turner said that he, he found it really difficult to do this one is why I found it quite easy uh, to put myself in the <laughs> mindset of somebody... Ha, 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 ha.
In Frank Miller's seminal Daredevil Born Again saga, the villainous Kingpin discovers the secret identity of the Marvel superhero Daredevil and uses his power and connections to anonymously and clandestinely torment and break the opponent he could never physically vanquish. Over the course of several months, lawyer Matt Murdock finds his life spiralling out of control as his bank accounts are frozen, his mortgage is foreclosed on, and he is disbarred. The psychological toll is evident as a paranoid Murdock lashes out, both at his closest friends, destroying his relationships with them, and at the street thugs of Hell's Kitchen, with whom he grows increasingly violent. The campaign culminates in the firebombing of Murdoch's apartment and the staged survival of his Daredevil costume, which he finds in the wreckage. This crude, reckless, impatient and unsubtle act is what finally tips off Daredevil to the source of his anguish. It was a nice piece of work, Kingpin, he says. You shouldn't have signed it. In The Invisible Man, Griffin suffers from much the same weakness. The insufferable, perverse man-child is so giddy with anticipation at the prospect of watching Cecilia unravel by his own unseen hand that we might infer that he wants her to know more than merely believe that he is behind everything. This leads him to some sloppy and impetuous decisions that could easily derail his machinations at worst, or at the very least reassure C that she isn't going mad. Holding onto his old cell phone, for example, and using it to take photographs of her while she slept, could not be interpreted as a considered or calculated move. More damning still, if we're to believe his aim was to manufacture a reasonable doubt in C's mind about his involvement by framing his brother, then his less than subtle callback of surprise to her at the climax was arrogantly transparent. Forget slashing throats, it's the slow knife that cuts deepest. I would have played the long game. On my side of the board, the elegant ballet of Connect Four. On her side, the blind confusion of battleships. <laughs> Picture the scene. C sits down to breakfast. The sweet aroma of bacon fills her nostrils as it crisps perfectly in the pan. There's another smell. Smoke? Yes. Not the acrid plumes of a pan fire, oh no, but the wispy teas of beach. She pours a piping hot coffee, black and bitter. She reaches for a spoonful of sugar and brings it to the lip of her coffee mug, But what's this? I've nudged it, gently, almost imperceptibly, and she's spilt sugar all over the table. Sydney is bemused. She laughs, but her forehead wrinkles. C flushes, beet red, but allows herself a chuckle. Maybe she puts it off as tiredness. She reaches for another spoonful, this time spilling as soon as it leaves the sugar bowl. Sydney asks if she's okay. C laughs it off again. Perhaps this time the mirth is lacking, but she reassures Sydney she's just tired. I'll leave it there for today. Tomorrow I will place a stone in her shoe. <laughs> we were quite on the same track there, I think, T. We just wanted to, to mildly irritate her. <laughs> but Turner's went off into a witch trial. <laughs> Yes, yeah, I, I stuck with the mild irritation. If you remember when we discussed what superpowers would we want in school, and I wanted magnetos, but only to bend people's spoons while they were yeah. trying to eat. Yeah, that's what that's what I was going to say about when I said to move in the cereal bowl, and I remember that very conversation about bending the spoon. They're going, ah, 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 trying to eat the cereal. You don't need magneto's power for that. You can just have Yuri Geller's powers. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. You just have to rub it. Spoon-loving motherfucker.
Uh, I don't envy you this week, Gaz. There's some uh, very strong plans. Humdingers, I'd say. Okay, so sum up, we had Steiner's plan, which involved watching Cecilia from afar for several weeks before creating a situation involving a hunk spilling deli meats that Cecilia was holding to manufacture a meeting between the two, which she would feed romantic lines to before revealing that it was you all along and you would win her heart. Turner's plan, which uh, (laughs) involved (laughs) weapons contractors, um, cults in the jungle, witch trials, uh, all kinds of crazy shit. (laughs) And then we had Craig's plan of slow irritation to drive someone over the edge. Due to the context provided being one of my favourite superheroes, which is Daredevil, and the fact that I myself am very good at gently annoying people, particularly my wife, which she would (laughs) attest to, not to drive her mad, just just to make me laugh more than anything. Um, I'm awarding this week's victory to Craig. That was very good. I know you is that because he threw his toys out last week? Yeah, well, wait, I haven't finished throwing my toys out yet. Wait until it's your next <laughs> turn. You can love it. Okay, Craig, would you like to share your choice for next week's film? Ah, speed! Give me what I need! Ow, grease lightning! That's right, it's grease. No, it's speed. <laughs> I don't remember a lot about it, so I'm quite looking forward to it. I remember there's a bus. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts from. A good way to spread the message is just to tell your friends to give us a listen and to plug us on your social media. It really will help us get the pod into more ears. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at DiabolicalPod and on Facebook at Diabolical. Until next time, just be nice to people, would you?